Turn with me, if you would, in your copies of God's words to the Gospel according to Luke. That's Luke's Gospel and the second chapter. Luke chapter 2. We'll commence our reading there at verse 21. Hear once again the word of our God. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Let's far the reading of God's word, and may he bless it to us this morning. As we come to this text of scripture, we have meditated already on what stands before us. And of course, the scriptures hold out to us a profound moment. We are here watching as Emmanuel that he who really is God dwelling among men, coming into the temple of old, that temple that represented symbolically God dwelling among his people, you have here in this text, Emmanuel, the substance approaching the type, the temple and all of the ordinances. But even as we come to this text, And you hold together all that's gone before in this gospel. You come to a very striking question, don't you? Who has noticed? Who cares that Christ, the incarnate God, is now approaching the house that was called by his name? Who cares? Who knows? It's a striking thing because everything up to this point in the Gospels have told us that this is the one so long anticipated. This is the one whom the pious have desired through the ages. And yet when we come to this moment, as profound as it is, there's no fanfare. Where are the crowds? It is the church of God making proclamations, crying finally that he whom we have so long desired has arrived. What's striking about this text is the palpable silence from the church. Who cares? Who knows? According to Luke's gospel, in this moment, there are only two. Aside from Mary and from Joseph, all we find are Simeon and Anna. And our purpose this morning is to take up the first of those, first of those pious souls and deal them with Simeon. In verse 25, we're told 
quite a lot about the man. We're told, first of all, that he is Simeon, a man who was just and devout. Now, the idea there could be translated elsewhere in another way as righteous or God-fearing. The sense is this is a man who has been faithful in his dealings with his fellow men and a man who has been very conscious in his religious duties. In other words, you have a man here who with regard to the first and the second table of law has emitted a faithful testimony. That's what Luke would have us know first of all. And then we're told not just about his character but about his employment. We're not told that he is any kind of tradesman. We're not told what he does in the course of his life. But we are told this much. He is one who is waiting for the consolation of Israel. And what's striking about this, friend, is this is something that Luke provides for us as a discriminating factor. This is something that distinguishes Simeon from the rest of his generation. He is one who is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon is waiting. Now why is that striking? Striking, friend, because of all that has gone before in the first chapter. In this very temple, the Lord God had revealed Christ in a fresh way after 400 years of silence. And the way in which Christ was revealed, remember, was incredibly public. And not only that, when that revelation came through Zacharias, it came primarily to Levites. It came to a church then that had recently received all of these notes from on high that the Messiah was coming. And yet Simeon is the only one described as waiting for the consolation of Israel. Notwithstanding their speaking of the Messiah so frequently. Notwithstanding all these recent revelations from heaven. Simeon alone is described by the gospel writer as one waiting for Israel's consolation. We'll certainly come back to that in time, but it's worthy to note here. He is a man who is faithful in the first and second table of the law, and unlike the church in which he resided, he really did wait for the Lord. We're not told only about his character and his employment, we're also told about his gifts. The Holy Ghost was upon him. This refers primarily, as we look through Luke's Gospel, to the spirit of prophecy. He is a man, then, that would be really a messenger of the Messiah. Not one who merely waited for him, but one who would speak with the spirit of Christ. And really proclaim God's word to this generation. Now that's Simeon. In the 26th verse, we're told that he was also given a promise. And that promise is just that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Or if you like it another way, Simeon was promised that he would encounter Christ before he encountered death. And if you hold together the fact that this man was given the spirit of prophecy with this promise, the idea is, is that Simeon would prophesy over this Christ. The spirit of prophecy was given to him for its use, and so this promise that he would see the Lord's Christ would be that he would actually pronounce the blessing that we see in the subsequent verses. Simeon is promised to be a prophet, even as the Lord Jesus Christ is held in his arms. Now, as we look at this text, then holding all of these themes together, what you see here is a confession. 
A confession made by a believing remnant. Really, that's how we should be looking at the verses that come after our text. Here is the voice of the church that has waited. Not the voice of the, of the multitudes. Not, not the voice of the entire visible church at this time. But just the voice of the believing and waiting remnant. Luke would have us see all that comes after that as the testimony of those who have stood fast. Who, in spite of all the defection around them, have clung to the truth and have sought to provide a faithful testimony to it. So Simeon and so Anna. But secondly, I want you to notice, beloved, as we look at this text, Luke gives us that detail. This idea that this man is a faithful man with regard both to his duties to man and to God. Not simply to to fill space. I mean, friend, if you look at this text, if you look at verse 24, 25 rather, and you simply take away that description, that Simeon was a devout and a just man, what have we lost? If we take away this description, what do we really lose? The gospel writer, the inspired historian, could set before us the truth of the gospel, simply say there was a man called Simeon, and bring to us the blessing that Simeon proclaims in the verses following. Why does he then tarry long enough to tell us the kind of man whom we see? Well, friend, palpably the answer is that this man who would speak such high and such glorious words about Christ was not a religious fanatic. He he was not an enthusiast. He was not one who was distempered. He was not a maniac. Neither was he a hypocrite who would say things, lofty things with his lips, but his heart would be disinclined to them all. Luke would have us hear the testimony that he brings to us about Christ as the testimony coming from a man who is a faithful testimony bearer. He would have us know that these words that came, this confession of Christ that would come, comes from the lips of a man who is just and devout. A thoroughly godly man. And friend, does that not adorn the very confession that follows? Does that not beautify Simeon's testimony to Christ in the following lines? Luke would have us know this before he brings to us what Simeon pronounces. And holding all of these things together, our theme then for this morning is just this. In the example of Simeon, we have the reality that godliness adorns the confession of Christ. Godliness adorns the confession of Christ. We'll certainly spend time in the next several minutes explaining what all that means. But I want us to see this under three basic headings. I want us to see, first of all, the extent of its godliness, its experience, and the expectation that attended it. And so, first of all, the extent. As I said to you already, this is a man who is described here just and devout. He's a man who is sought to be faithful in all things pertaining to God and to man. Like the apostle in the book of Acts, he longs to keep his conscience clear with regard to both. He's a man who really is aiming at faithfulness. So Job is described. Job was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. It's, it's a kind of compendium 
to say that the man was not a first table or a second table only man. He was a man who took the entire counsel of God, all the precepts that his God has enjoined upon him, and he has set his hand as best that he could, as sincerely as he might, to fulfill all. That's the short description, but potent description the gospel writer gives us here. And friend, in this moment, what you have here is the reality that Simeon looks very much like the one whom he anticipated. Just take, for example, what David says as he looks to Christ. In 2 Samuel 23, he says this. He says, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just. Ruling in the fear of God. What's striking is there, though perhaps it doesn't come out so clearly in the English. First, 2 Samuel 23 is David's reflection on the covenant that God had made. That the scepter of Shiloh would be held by one of his own posterity. He speaks here then of the Messiah. The one who would rule over men as great David's greater son must be just and ruling in the fear of God. He would be faithful in first and second table duties. And what's striking here is Simeon, who so longs to see this Christ, has taken on his likeness, resembles the one he anticipates. But friends, as we look at this, what we see here is that this godliness that so adorns his confession, that as it were beautifies everything that follows, is a godliness that studies faithfulness in every regard. Take that negatively, first of all. I want you to notice how uncommon Simeon is. We read over these, we read over the scriptures often so thoughtlessly. When we read over this text, friend, just ponder for a moment how rare Simeon really was. It was no exaggeration by either John the Baptist or by the Savior to say that this was an untoward generation, a faithless, a perverse generation, a generation of vipers. They were not exaggerating when they said Simeon's day was a day of deep defection in the church of God. And when Christ looks at Jerusalem specifically, Jerusalem, Zion is described as a city that kills the prophets, those who spoke by the Spirit of Christ, rather than hearing them. And yet in Jerusalem, in this generation, there is a man who is just, And who is devout. Friend, it's a striking thing, isn't it? A man standing, aiming at faithfulness in a time when even the visible church has succumbed to the world. Simeon is no common man. And beloved, if we would imitate Simeon in our generation, such who imitate him certainly would be uncommon as well. But think of it positively. You see here that this is a man who espouses the whole cause of God. He takes upon himself the whole cause of God. And again, how rare is he? You remember how the visible church at this time so used and slighted the law. 
They turned the law of God against God himself, as it were. They created doctrines and made them the commandment, treated as commandments of men the doctrine of God. Christ himself abrased, cast against this generation as a generation who has pitted one duty against the other. In other words, friend, in the name of religion, the church, the visible church at this time, had reduced the rigor of the law of God to nothing. And on top of that, had created new laws as well. But yet, here is Simeon. In spite of all of those snares, in spite of all of those temptations to defection, either to the right hand or to the left, here you have a man who has studied faithfulness to God. Again, beloved, this is no common man. The gospel writer would have us see this. The kind of character that's exhibited here is one that is rare. This is a man that has risen above the temptations of his generation. This is a man who may very well be infected with the spirit of deadness and coldness, but yet, sincerely, he studies faithfulness in every regard. Now, we find here, beloved, that this is a man then who fits very well into that paradigm set for us in all of Scripture. A man who will not pick and choose the duties that God has given to his people. We live in reductionist times, don't we? We live in times whenever we pick and choose what does or does not belong to the cause of Christ. Not so Simeon. All that God has commanded... All that he requires, Simeon studied to be faithful in. Friend, if you don't realize today that our generation is very much like Simeon's, I only encourage you to look at the youth and the questions that are being raised now. Is opposition to abortion really a Christian duty? If you don't think that question is being asked by Reformed and Presbyterian people, you've missed the conversation. Is it really the cause of Christ to oppose homosexuality? Have we not moved beyond that? Those are the very kinds of questions, friend, that are alive and well in our own generation. Surely we have moved beyond such questions. And the world would love us to do so, wouldn't they? The world is quick to tell us what is and what is not the cause of Christ. Well, the cause of Christ, they say, is primarily this kind of love that accepts all without any regard to the divine law. That accepts all without saying that there's only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. According to the world, that's how the cause of Christ is defined. Oh, but friend, this is not something new, isn't it? This is how we in the church have lost so much. So many have said that the cause of Christ does not consist in political dissent, covenanting. It doesn't consist in head coverings. It doesn't consist in all of these other things. We've moved beyond that. No, my dear friend, Simeon would counsel us to study faithfulness in all things. To remember the word of God. Christ says, ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. Christ determines what his cause is. Not Simeon, and not any generation. The scriptures say very plainly, We ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest we should let them slip. 
And the counsel that is given by Christ to the churches twice in Revelation is just this. That which ye have already, hold fast till I come. Study faithfulness in all things. Whatsoever I have commanded you. Not what you have decided. Not what the world would dictate. But whatsoever I have commanded you as it pertains both to first and second table duties. Study to be just and devout. And beloved, what Simeon looks like here, and what every Christian is supposed to look like in such a generation, is that we are to be servants who see ourselves not at liberty to choose what commands to follow and what to forsake. That's our calling. If the Master has commanded, we have no right to go to the right or to the left hand. Simeon sets before us that pattern. And below what you see here is then that godliness, as the, as the gospel writer brings it to us, concerns all that belongs to both tables. Godliness is to be defined according to one's adherence to the cause of Christ. Not the definition supplied by the world. Not the whims of those trends even within the visible church. According to those trends, Simeon was neither just nor devout. No, my dear friend, godliness must be defined according to the word of God. Now if that's the extent of Simeon's piety, I want you to notice his experience. We're told here that he was a man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And while it's quick, while we quickly, rather, I think, move to define what that consolation is, take just that reading that we get at first brush. Simeon is a man who knew, first of all, that Israel required consolation. If Israel did not require comfort, if she did not require mollification, waiting for it is a redundancy. So he knows that Israel requires this. But secondly, by inference, we know also that consolation would come. Simeon is not described here as a man wishing, not a man hoping, but a man waiting for consolation. He is confident that God would be gracious to Israel. He has precious promises that he holds to. He is not a wisher, but a waiter. And thirdly and finally, you find here by inference that because he has waited, and the sense is he has waited for some time, he has a strong desire that these things will be brought to fulfillment. Simeon, in other words, is not a man who is disaffected with the things of God. He's not a man who is disjointed in his heart from, from the condition of Israel and her comfort. He's a man who is really and earnestly looking for the reviving of God's people. His heart is moved, as it were, burdened by these things. And so he waits. And friend, that teaches us something about this kind of godliness that adorns the public confession of Christ. It's a godliness that also has with it an exercised desire for the church's reviving. Those who would be like Simeon should be burdened, will be burdened, after an earnest desire for God's grace to be known to his people. I want you to notice that even in this knowledge that Simeon has, that Israel stands in need of his grace, he stands apart. And so is it with every generation. 
I mean, take just for a moment the words of the prophet. Ephraim is a cake not turned, says Hosea. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. Yea, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth it not. And the pride of Israel testifieth to his face, and they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Do you see what Hosea describes as the spiritual condition of the church? There are gray hairs all over you. In other words, there are tokens of God's displeasure all around you. And you do not see it. You do not sense your need. That's what Hosea is saying. He's saying all the tokens of divine wrath are all around you. And you're not even cognizant of it. You don't even sense it. That's what he means when he says Ephraim is a cake not turned. Under the heat of divine displeasure she has become calloused. Under the heat of God's displeasure she has become insensitive. And she no longer knows that she requires the Lord's grace. Not so Simeon. Simeon is one who waits because he knows Israel requires it. In other words, beloved, what you see here is a man who is conscious of Israel's greatest malady. Her spiritual rejection of God. He's conscious of it. And because his affections are so bound in waiting for it, we understand then that he is described as those who mourn in Zion. He mourns and he laments. These things. And so he waits in earnest for their consolation. But I want you to notice this, friend. I think we have this misconception. You know, I, I would say almost certainly this is a misconception we hold. That when the church is really declined, when the visible church is really in a low state. Well, everybody in the visible church knows it. Everybody in the visible church is sensible of it. And everybody is pleading for its remediation. Nowhere in scripture do you find that. When the church is at her lowest. She is described as the prophet describes his generation. She doesn't even know. That she's needy. Very few know. Very few know among her. That she stands in need of great revival. It was the case in Simeon's day. And beloved. We should not be surprised if it's the case in our own. You see Simeon was one who cried. Peace be within thy walls and prosperity within thy palaces. For my brethren and companions' sakes, I will now say, Peace be within me. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek thy good. Simeon was a man who longed for the church's reviving. For her real good. Good as God defined it. And so he is a waver. One whose affections are driven. Driven. By these things. This is the kind of testimony that, endure, that adorns, as it were, the public confession of Christ.
And while this is getting perhaps ahead of ourselves, note here what comes to Simeon. The mourner is made a gainer. The one who waited for the consolation of Israel is one who will hold Christ in his arms. And beloved, there's an application, a perfectly legitimate and just application that we draw from that. That the mourners in Zion will certainly be refreshed. Just take two instances from Isaiah. Take Isaiah 61. The prophet says, Christ is called to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Note what Christ's calling is, according to the prophet, to come to such as Simeon was, and give them for their mourning and for their ashes, this wonderful grace, this consolation and this reviving. Even in the Gospel of Luke, you have an example of Christ doing that. Tangibly, yes. Extraordinarily, yes. But nonetheless, Christ fulfilling his office. Or take another instance from Isaiah. The prophet writes, Rejoice ye with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all ye that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her. Note how the prophet joins these two ideas. Those who mourn for Zion rejoice with her. Certainly that was Simeon's case. Certainly it was the case that the man who waited so long for Israel's reviving also rejoiced with joy unspeakable and full of glory as he held in his arms the Lord's Christ. But thirdly and finally, we find that this godliness has annexed to it a kind of expectation. We're told here that Simeon would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And the sense is, of course, that these two lines, verses 25 and 26, stand in parallel and interpret one another. What was the consolation of Israel? Really, the question is, who was the consolation of Israel? The answer, Jesus Christ. When was this promise fulfilled? When Simeon holds Christ in his arms. That's the sense of the text. But friend, if we look at this text, you see here, don't you? What was it principally that was Simeon's desire and longing? Yes, of course it was for the church's reviving. Yes, of course it was was to see the reviving and quickening grace of God known. To see Israel who had failed all the time and reduced the law of God in other ways and extended it in others still. To see God really exalted in his people. Simeon longed for these things, of course. But his expectation was tied not even essentially to those blessings, but to their fount. To the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Zion's only consolation. Zimeon, in other words, has an expectation, a longing for Christ and for more of Christ. For Christ himself, first of all. Note how he's described. The gospel writer here calls Jesus the Lord's Christ. It's a striking thing. Is the first time, of course, in the scriptures that Christ is referred to in these terms. 
And what is the gospel writer doing? Well, he's setting before us, of course, the deity of Christ, as well as his humanity. If you will, the being of Christ and his office, all in one. He is the Lord's Christ, the Lord's anointed, because he alone, a second person of the Trinity, could in his infinite person really redeem his people. And he is Christ because he is anointed to do that very thing. It is Jesus Christ himself who is the object of Simeon's longing. He longed for more of Christ. Remind, I remind you, friend, that in the Old Covenant they had Christ. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. When he saw it, he was glad, says Christ. Abraham saw and he enjoyed Christ in a sense in the Old Covenant. So what is Simeon longing for? He's longing for more of Christ. He's longing for more of the one whom his faith is fixed upon. In other words, friend, Simeon was described here as the one who would have a crown of righteousness because he loved the Lord's appearing. There is no godliness. Beloved, there is no piety apart from this longing. If we reduce piety, our definition of godliness to precepts, independent of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is purely Phariseeism. Simeon longed for Christ. And that was why he longed and studied faithfulness in all the cause of God. Because it was integrally, inextricably tied to the one whom he loved. All godliness must necessarily be squared to Christ. Friend, I don't care what cause you may espouse. There have been many who have championed covenanting. Many who have championed all kinds of, of what is now considered by society archaic principles. Who did not have this expectation. Who did not have this longing. For whatever reason they held to the authorized version. For whatever reason they held to head coverings. For whatever reason they held to psalmody. It doesn't matter because for many, many my dear friend. Their clinging to it was without this clinging to Christ. And I don't need to cite examples for you, do I? It's written right throughout our history, and it's written even in the present. Simeon was distinct not only because he held to the whole cause of God. He was distinct because his heart was fixed upon Jesus Christ. But secondly, friend, I'll note this to you as well. Simeon is a man who knows. He's a man... He's a man who knows that there's a real difference between speaking of Christ and longing for him. I've already told you before that this generation that Simeon lived in was a generation that spoke so frequently about Christ. In fact, as you read extra-testamental literature, you'll find that there are all kinds of writings about the last chapters of Daniel and specifically about those messianic ideas that Daniel conveys to us. The generation, in other words, was speaking so often about Christ. The sense from the writers and from the histories that we get is that almost in every corner there was a conversation about Christ. But only Simeon longs for Christ. That's Luke's point. This was a distinguishing characteristic for the man. He not only spoke of Christ, he really longed 
for him. There's a real difference between the piety of Simeon and Anna and what was alive and well and was common in the generation in which they lived. And friend, be careful, because this is certainly a temptation of our own, isn't it? We can speak much of Christ. We can say much about the cause of Christ. And yet be utter strangers to him. To know much about him. And yet not to know him at all. Simeon and Anna separate themselves because they had this knowledge of Christ. Long before they held them, held him in their arms. But also, my dear friend, you'll see here that he's a man who longs for the consolation of Israel. And we can't miss this point. The sense of this is Simeon sees that the church's reviving is only to come through Christ. Only through Christ. Oh, have we not, have we not been mistaken at this point in ways that Simeon wasn't? Well, the church's redemption today will come because certain policies are passed in Stormont or Westminster or Washington, D.C. The church's consolation will come whenever we finally are able to eradicate certain agendas from the land. The church's consolation will come whenever we have all these other programs that are supposed to bolster the church's influence among us. No. Simeon didn't trust that the church would be comforted once Roman overlords were removed. He didn't trust that Israel's consolation would come as soon as Israel was able to establish its own form of government. All of her consolation would only be found in Christ. He and he alone is Israel's consolation. And so Simeon waits for him. He waits for him. Simeon here, friend, and all that would make a public confession of Christ must then be spiritual watchmen whose eyes are trained upon Christ. You remember the watchman in, in years gone by. It was his calling to stand on the walls and never to allow his eyes to leave the horizon. And in fact, if it was found that the watchman became distracted, or if he fell asleep on the job, what would happen? He would be put to death. And so, friend, when the watchman stood on Israel's walls, he knew it was a necessary thing for his own well-being and for the entire church, never to leave his eyes off the horizon. Beloved, that is the mark of the godly man today, but it's not the horizon. It is the day spring from on high that the godly must never lose sight of. Only Christ, my dear friend. Only Christ. You'll discern his cause and you'll have a heart to follow it as your eyes are trained upon him. That, my dear friend, is Simeon's example, and it's for us today. But as we close, I want you to notice two things. The text informs us as we apply it that in this moment you have mourning, this looking for consolation, representing a kind of harbinger for consolation and blessing. 
want you to notice how the psalmist reasons this. This perhaps may become clear. In Psalm 102, he writes, The time to favor Zion, yea, the time is come. Why does he know this? Why does he know that the time for favor has come after the church has literally been destroyed, brick and mortar ruined through the exile? Here's the psalmist's argument. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. You see his argument. The psalmist looks now across the church and he finds Simeon's. He finds mourners in Zion. And he says that portends the Lord's blessing. That speaks to him hope that the Lord soon would turn and bring the former and the latter rain. When God raises up mourners in Zion, beloved, that is a wonderful mark. A hope that things will come. That reviving is not far off. Take even Jeremiah 31 to this end. They shall come with weeping and with supplications will I lead them, says the Lord. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way wherein they should not stumble. How will they be led? How will this reformation come? He says, they will come with weeping and with supplications. The leading of the Lord, moving them beyond their, their, their plight of defection, and even from underneath the tokens of his displeasure, how will that come about, says the prophet? It will come as the Lord leads them with weeping and supplications. This perhaps is why our views of reformation are so twisted, isn't it? We forget that reformation, according to the scriptures, begins with weeping and supplication. Or take it the other way, negatively. Ezekiel writes thus, Your tires shall be upon your heads and your shoes upon your feet. Ye shall not mourn nor weep, but ye shall pine away for your iniquities. Ezekiel says this to a generation who will not know reformation. He says, instead of mourning, instead of having those who weep over your fallen condition, you will be a people who will not mourn. You will be a people who will pine away in your iniquities in external splendor. That's the mark of a generation under the wrath of God. And how different is that generation from those who are filled with mourners, who look to Zion with weeping? The one is a harbinger of reformation. The other one is a harbinger of only greater decline. And so, beloved, when we see Simeon's among us, this is a great cause to hope for the godly. But if there are not many among us, what is the Lord saying? But secondly, beloved, as we see this, we see here, an example. Those who are mourning are also those who look to Christ and in looking to Christ are made more like him. That's the point that I alluded to at the very beginning. Simeon is faithful in all of these things. Why? Because his eye is trained upon Christ and as his eye is trained upon Christ, he's conformed more into the likeness of the one whom he beholds. And friend, it's always that order, isn't it? Let the man stand around and hear sermons about moralism. Let the man say that he'll put away this, that, and the third sin. 
But if his eye is not trained upon Christ, my dear friend, he's nothing like Simeon. He's nothing like those who really possess genuine godliness. It is beholding Christ by faith that is the root and the foundation of the man's piety. We should never miss the order. And so the question for us is, are we people who long for Zion's consolation as Simeon did? Are we people who long for the reviving of the church as he did? Are we exercised with these desires? Have we wept over these things? And then, friend, it leads us to that second question. Not that weeping is sufficient of itself. Not that mourning of itself is meritorious. It leads us to that next question. In doing so, are we a people who have eyed Christ in our mourning? Friend, you could find Pharisees in Simeon's day who would weep and who would wail. But they weren't Simeon's. It's not weeping alone. Not mourning alone but beholding Christ that is necessary as we do so. And so, beloved, for our comfort, what do we find? We find here that Simeon was a man who lived in dark days. A man who lived in days so dark that the mouthpiece of God, time and time again, said this was an untoward, evil, faithless, perverse, and viperous generation. And yet, even as Simeon is here, set before us. He was one who already looked to and enjoyed Christ. I mean, friend, you see here a man, don't you, who long before he took up Christ in his arms had already embraced him by faith. Even in an age of defection, he could enjoy Christ. Even in an age of decline, he could know something of Christ's blessed presence. And this was only by faith. Only by faith. And this was, this was Simeon's greater blessing. It was his greater, his surer, his longer, and his more intimate blessing. That the Christ whom he beheld in his arms. Was already the one with whom he enjoyed communion by faith. And beloved, that's held out to everyone in such a generation as ours. Yes, decline may be marked all around us. But what depths of communion with Christ are held out to us in the word of God that may yet be known and enjoyed? You see, beloved, that is the greater blessing Simeon enjoyed. May we be such people who long for that. To the Christian, this is a clarion call. Albeit perhaps controversial, albeit perhaps uncomfortable, but it's a clarion call nonetheless that we are to be people who study faithfulness in all things and manifest carefulness, especially in times of declension. We must be such people. We must be people who study to be faithful in all the cause of God and must be people who, as Sardis is described in the book of Revelation, who are keeping their garments clean. In an evil day. That is our call. But to the unconverted friend, what is this? Well, this is a reminder that Simeon, though he was in many ways alone, a beloved, he was a man who had the greater part. 
If you're outside of Christ this morning, if you do not know this Christ by faith, the world will tell you that you stand in the majority. The world will tell you that you can be the applause and the toast of the elites of our age. But friend, this text shows us that Simeon certainly had the greater part. By not participating in the generation sins, by not declining as so many would have tempted him to do so, he enjoyed nothing less than Jesus Christ, God incarnate. Do not believe the lie, friend. The world will tell you the greater part is to be found with them. But all throughout the book of God, and Simeon included, we find here that those who would enjoy the greatest blessing are even those who are alone and who are mourners in Zion, because they shall hold the Lord's Christ, and not by faith. And so take him. Take him by faith, even this morning, as he's offered to you from his own heart. Amen.